Today we continue our sermon series entitled, The Cost of Discipleship. So far in this series, following Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his classic book by that name, The Cost of Discipleship, we've talked about the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It means only mental assent to the Christian faith without requiring any change on the part of the, of the sinner. And so it is a false justification of sin without justifying the sinner. But costly grace, on the other hand, means following Jesus in such a way that we abandon trust in ourselves, surrendering everything we are and everything we have to him. Such grace is costly because it condemns sin And it is grace because it justifies the sinner. It is costly because it costs God his own son. And we were bought with a price. And what has cost God so much cannot truly be cheap for us. We've also talked about how many Christians, including even Christian pastors, try to insist that grace is so all-sufficient that we need nothing else. That there's nothing one has to do but speak the words. To raise your hand to profess to having faith, and then the grace will cover everything. But to defend that position, they misquote and misrepresent Scripture, claiming the Bible tells us that nothing is needed for salvation but grace, without the need to do anything. While grace, the grace of God and having faith in Jesus Christ does save us, we also have to pay attention to the rest of Scripture. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John the Apostle wrote, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, meaning of course Jesus, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. And James, the half-brother of Jesus and the head of the Jerusalem Council, wrote in the epistle of James, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now we are saved by grace and by our faith. But as we said last week, true faith requires obedience. And any faith that does not include obedience is not really faith. But how far must our obedience go? What does Jesus really demand of us? Is it very hard? Can we do it? What does it mean to be obedient to Jesus? Well, to answer the questions of what Jesus really demands of us and what true obedience looks like, let's look at the scripture passage for today's sermon, which is taken from the 14th chapter of Luke. I want to focus on the 25th to the 27th verse and then verse 33. Hear now this, which is the word of the Lord. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then down to verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Did Jesus really say we have to hate our parents and our spouse and our children and other family members? What could he possibly have meant by that? Well, first, Jesus really did say it. This is not some aberrant translation. 
This is the true word of Jesus. This is what if, one of what is so-called hard sayings of Jesus. But as we read this, we have to note that Jesus elsewhere consistently demands that we love one another, not hate one another. And that in Jewish culture, it was considered a most fundamental part of the law that you love and obey your parents. Remember that honor your father and mother is one of the big ten. That's one of the ten commandments. Hating one's family would be a violation of God's law and inconsistent with everything else Jesus said. And it's also true that Jesus was very critical of the Pharisees who refused to take care of their parents on the excuse that everything they owned was committed to God and therefore they couldn't give it to family members. So something else is going on here. And we have to be careful when we seek to interpret this as we do with all of Jesus' hard sayings. One way to misinterpret this verse is to take it too literally. Cults, especially pseudo-Christian cults, have often operated on the premise that this statement is literally true. And they have tried to pit loyalty to the group, the cult group, against love for family. In doing so, they attempt to distance followers from their family members because the family members might convince them to try to leave the cult. And so they emphasize this as being literally true, that you have to hate your family members if you are part of the religious group. This has also helped critics of Christianity point to this verse to try to diminish the Christian faith. They have said, atheists have said, that you quote this verse as a perfect example of how the Christian cult operates. So much for traditional family values, right? So it seems obvious that a literal interpretation of Jesus' statement here can lead us to wrong conclusions. But what is the alternative? Because this is what he said. This is the word of God. I think it's likely that Jesus here is speaking in hyperbole, as he often does. Hyperbole is a a kind of figure of speech that uses obvious and intentional exaggeration for effect or for emphasis to really drive the point home. Like if I were to say, man, this bag I had to carry weighed a ton. Well, unlikely I would have actually been carrying it if it weighed a ton. Or I was so tired I thought I was going to die. I'm not really going to die from being tired, probably. So we do that all the time. Likewise, Jesus frequently used hyperbole for emphasis. He said, for instance, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We are not going to be as perfect as God, but we need to try to be better. And so he used a hyperbole for emphasis. He also said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. A scripture that prompted Charles Williams to talk about a long, bloody string of camel. G.K. Chesterton notes that, and I quote here, Christ had even a literary style of his own. The diction used by Christ is quite curiously gigantesque. Gigantesque, not gigantesque, that's the word. It is full of camels leaping through needles and mountains being hurled into the sea. It should also be noticed that Jesus wasn't the only one who talked this way, especially in the first century. The use of hyperbole was common among Semitic peoples, not just Jews, but other people in the Middle East. And it arose out of the cultural tendency to view things in extremes, what we would say, either black or white, with no grays in between. The ancient Semitic mindset tended to see things as either one way or the other with very little middle ground. And you can see some of that in the Old Testament as well. 
Here in Luke 14, Jesus is calling for his followers to renounce everything. In effect, to hate, I put quotes around that, family members and even life itself if those things would prevent them from being complete in their discipleship of following him. And this renunciation of life is expressed in terms that we would miss, I think, but that would be harshly realistic in the first century. When Jesus says here that you must carry the cross, that's not just a metaphor. Anyone who heard Jesus speak of this would immediately understand what crucifixion means, the horror of that. Jesus was in the business of making rebels, and crucifixion was how the Romans dealt with rebels. A criminal who was condemned to the atrocious punishment of crucifixion was often compelled to carry the crossbeam that they were to be crucified on out to the place of execution where they would be nailed or tied to it, and that would be mounted on the upright so that they could be executed there. This is the picture which the words Jesus speaks conjures up in the mind of people who heard them. We see crosses everywhere all the time, and we don't realize that in the first century this was the most horrendous symbol possible. To tell someone voluntarily to accept the cross would have been outrageous. So I believe Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here. But there is one other viable option, one other possible way of interpreting Jesus' words. And that is we could read it as being literal, not hyperbolic, but that we not take the word hate in the way we usually would, as a strong, personal, and vindictive sense. This may sound strange to our ears, but there is in literature a legitimate use of the word hate that implies rejection, a decision not to choose one over the other without it being this sort of malicious emotion. The obvious example in Scripture would be when God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Where the whole message is God chose one over the other. He chose Jacob over Esau, but he also blessed Esau. It's not that God harbored necessarily malice toward Esau and not Jacob. He just gave preference to Jacob. But his, the, the Scripture says... Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It's not hate in the sense we usually think of it, but rather it simply means to love less. But either way, it seems that this is confirmed in Matthew 10. Matthew 10 is a parallel to Luke 14, where Matthew writes his version of Jesus' words in this case. Matthew 10, starting with verse 37, says this. Notice the difference. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So in this case, it indicates Jesus is saying that you must love me more. And hate means to love less. But while people get hung up on these words, hate your father and mother, hate your spouse and child, hate your brother and sister, the point is clear that Jesus is telling his disciples, both his first century disciples and his 21st century disciples, that we must put him before everything else. Nothing can have precedence over Jesus. Jesus must come before our possessions. He must become, come before our family members. He must come before even our own lives. 
Whoever does not carry their cross, meaning going willingly to their death, and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem here, where, as he has predicted multiple times to his followers, he will be betrayed and beaten, crucified and killed. And he is insisting that his followers too must be prepared to die with him. This past week in our Friday Bible study, as we're studying 2 Timothy, we came across Paul's words in the third chapter of 2 Timothy, where he says this, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. There's no qualifier there. There's no way to translate that differently. All who wish to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Well, when we looked at that, one person in our group said it didn't seem like a very positive recruiting technique. Whether we consider that Paul promised all who want to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted, and this was written by Paul when he was in prison in Rome, awaiting his execution. It's from the last book he wrote. Or Jesus telling us that we must put him before even beloved family members, that we must, in fact, be willing to give up everything and even be prepared to go to our own deaths if we are to follow him. Hard words indeed. But you know what? People know when something is true or not. People know when something means something worthwhile or not. We discussed in Bible study as well that a number of years ago now, some of the mainline denominations in the United States said that in an effort to try to attract more people, they were not going to be so insistent upon what their beliefs were. They were not going to be so dogmatic about what you had to believe in order to attend. Particularly, the Episcopal churches and the Methodist churches made a conscious decision to not focus on the doctrine of what they believed. On the other hand, you had fundamentalist churches that took the opposite tact and said, we are absolutely going to be solid in what we believe and tell people they are welcome to be with us if they agree that they accept those things and believe them too. So you had the very loose interpretation of some of the mainline denominations and the very strict dogmatic interpretation of some of the fundamentalist and Pentecostal churches. Well, brothers and sisters, which one of those groups is failing and which one of those groups is growing? We're not fundamentalists, we're not Pentecostals here, but we are clear about what we believe. We take the Word of God seriously. The fact is, mainline denominations that have watered down what they believe, thinking people will be attracted to that, are dying very quickly. Churches that say this is what we believe based upon the Word of God are growing, and in many cases growing very significantly. And I believe the only answer to that is that people can tell when something is worth it or not. And if you are not called upon to sacrifice anything for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it can't really be worth anything. Jesus said you must be prepared to give up everything for me because it's worth it. And in our hearts, we know that. There's a book I want to recommend to you on this topic, and it is, of all things, a love story. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's a little book called A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Auken. It's well known particularly because in the book there are 18 letters from C.S. Lewis that he wrote to Sheldon Van Auken and his wife. Well, this story, A Severe Mercy, is about... Sheldon Van Alken and the love of his life, Gene Davis, who everyone called Davy. Sheldon and Davy met in the 1930s and they fell in love 
and were so much in love they were inseparable. And they were so much in love, in fact, that they bought a sailing schooner and they named it the Grey Goose. Because the Grey Goose, if its mate is ever killed, it flies on alone and never takes another mate. That's how committed they were to each other. They loved each other so much they talked about creating the shining barrier of love, meaning they would have a capsule of love around them that they would be inside and everything else would be shut out if necessary. Their love was that strong. Well, while studying at Oxford in England, Sheldon and Davy developed a friendship with C.S. Lewis when he was an Oxford Don. And as I say, there are a number of letters to them from C.S. Lewis in this book, A Severe Mercy. Well, Sheldon and Davy, through the influence of C.S. Lewis, became Christians. But Sheldon soon began to feel jealous as Davy began to focus more and more on a relationship with God. At one point, when Davy realizes that Sheldon's love for her is actually keeping him from deeper intimacy with God, she prays that God would do whatever is necessary for her husband Sheldon to come to love God as deeply as she does. Shortly after she prays that prayer, she becomes ill and then dies. Now Sheldon endures intense grief. He comes to discover the meaning of, as he calls it, a mercy as severe as death. That's where the title of the book, A Severe Mercy, comes from. He realizes he had been jealous of God and that he had wanted to pull his wife away from loving God so much so that she would love him more, he thought. He admits in the book he had loved her more than he loved God. But then... In the process of grieving, he comes to the understanding, as he says, and I quote here, one cannot be only incidentally a Christian. Van Alken accepts the reality that God sometimes calls us to leave everything and follow him, even if it results in a severe mercy. And that the answer to his wife's prayer that he would come to love God more required that she die. Now most of us We'll never be called on to sacrifice everything, whether it be our lives or the love of our lives, for Jesus. But it's a simple fact, my brothers and sisters, and you know this. We all die. It is the way of all flesh. We will all come to the end of our lives. The question is whether we have the wisdom to be prepared to die for the right thing, the worthwhile thing whether we are prepared to die for Jesus and in that way give real meaning to the lives we live here. Because Jesus is the only real thing there is. Everything else when compared to Jesus is just a facade. It may all look good on the surface, but there is nothing behind it. I sometimes have pictured this as though we're walking down a long street carrying our very heavy luggage, the baggage we have in life, and on both sides of us there are these Las Vegas-style fronts and barkers and flashing lights and come inside and entertainment here and just what you're looking for, all of this stuff. On the far end of the street there's a little craftsman bungalow and Jesus is standing on the porch. Now we can turn left or right into one of these Las Vegas-looking uh, attractions but when we walk through the door, we discover it's like a movie set. There's nothing on the other side. But if we will stay on the path and walk to the end where Jesus is saying, Come, come. You have to carry your own bags for a while, but when you get here, 
We go inside and we find those that we have loved who have gone before and we find a warm fire and good food and a comfortable bed and a place of ultimate fellowship. But we have to reject the flashy stuff in order to get there because that's all that's real when it boils down to it. Everything else is just a facade. Only Jesus has any depth. Only Jesus is real. Now, if we are wise enough to understand that Ultimately, we can't hold on to our lives. They are going to come to an end. In fact, we cannot even hold on to the people in our lives, no matter how much we love them for very long. But if we hold our lives and the lives of other people more loosely, if we are willing to let them go, if Jesus calls for us to let them go, then the point is we are promised that we will have both our lives and the fellowship of our Christian loved ones forever and ever. If we are willing to sacrifice the short term for the long term, the martyred missionary Jim Elliot very famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. And this is what we are called to do. To be prepared to give up the life we cannot hold or the lives of those we love that we cannot hold for the sake of an eternity of satisfaction with Christ and with those Christian beloved ones who went on before us. May we pray that God would give us the wisdom to take up our crosses and follow Jesus in the only life that really matters. Amen.